Today we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel, picking up where we left off in Matthew chapter 15. Hear God's holy word. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and the Savior revealed in your word. We ask you to guide us to understand him more and more as we hear these things today. Guide us by your spirit into truth and lead us in such a way that we would obey, that we would uh, be transformed, conform to his image. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just let your little brother win. Did you ever hear that growing up while playing games with your siblings? Just let him win one time. I had a younger sister, and I remember my mother pleading with me, let her win every once in a while. Of course, I couldn't stand that. I was super competitive, and victory was my drug. I loved winning. I loved the taste of victory in checkers or Monopoly or Risk or backyard badminton or flipping coins or racing or whatever we had going on, all the little goofy competitions you come up with when you're a kid. Let her win? What do you mean by that? How do you let someone win? Is that even really a win if you let them win? How could it possibly be fun for me to not try my best and, and then to let her beat me? How does that help her? How could she take that win seriously? If she wins, it needs a little asterisk by it that says, you didn't really win. She must know that this is a tainted victory. I think for my mom, though, it was less about the purity of the competition and more about the fact that my uh, sister would cry and pitch a fit when she lost and she didn't want to hear the whining and so she told me to let up every once in a while. It's not until you get children of your own and especially when you try to teach them a game or a sport, you realize that there's actually not that much fun in winning. I mean, is it really a victory if you've, if you've beaten a five-year-old at, at anything? It's, it's, not, it's not really winning if you do that. It's actually more fun to help them appreciate the game and to grow in skill. If you obliterate them every time, if you embarrass them every time you play, they're not going to play anymore. They're going to give up. So you learn in playing with your children, you learn how to adjust the strength of your play as they grow. You learn how to balance the challenge so it's just enough to keep them interested, just enough to help them get better without crushing their spirit. And so you do. You let the kid win every once in a while. I believe something similar to this. This is kind of a a helpful metaphor for understanding what is going on in Matthew 15, in this conversation between Jesus and this Canaanite woman. Liberal commentators and feminist commentators love this story, and they love to point at this story as an example when a, of when a woman set Jesus 
straight. They, they point to this and say, Jesus wasn't always perfect. He didn't always respond to everything the way that he should have. And that in this instance, it, it is supposed that Jesus was being misogynistic and he was being racist and he was being health, uh, hateful in his response to this woman. And so she corrected him, she put him in his place and taught him a thing or two about kindness and charity. Of course, that's blasphemous, that's, that's wrong and it's ignorant of everything that happens around this whole story. Jesus does not mistreat this woman. He heals her daughter, he meets her need, but he does it in a way where he provokes her to worship him. He provokes her to demonstrate a great faith in this way that he verbally spars with her. He lets her win. He uh, invites her to pursue him. He allows her to grab hold of him and get this blessing out of him. So let's study this story today. Uh, and let's set the scene. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is met by a Canaanite woman in great distress. She comes with an appeal, not for her own deliverance. She comes with a request for her daughter, who is, as she says, severely demon-possessed. This is not a light case. This is not the common cold version of a demon possession. This is a severe hardship. When you read about uh, people in the gospels and, and they're described as being possessed by evil spirits, they cry out, they injure themselves, they're impossible to control. This woman's home and her life are full of disorder because of her daughter's condition. And she's at the end of her rope. No one can help her. She has no other resources. And so when she hears that Jesus is coming through her country, she finds her one chance for the deliverance of her daughter. And she is not going to let this slip through her fingers. Now, some of the people who come to Jesus to be healed by him or to be fed by him, they do it without much gratitude. They, they have a shallow understanding of who Jesus is and many even forget to thank him. And the question now is, will this woman do the same? How deep is her faith? Uh, what, what is the substance of this faith with which she approaches him? What is Jesus doing in Canaanite country to begin with? Remember by this point in the gospel, Herod has put John the Baptist to death. Herod has also received a report about Jesus, and he thinks that Jesus is John come back from the grave to exact revenge on him. So Jesus is becoming more and more well-known, and there's this growing threat, even all the way up to Herod's palace, this, this, this sense that Jesus is a problem that's going to have to be dealt with. Jesus is becoming well-known throughout all of Judea and the surrounding territories. He's been healing, he's been casting out demons, he's been teaching larger and larger crowds of people. We saw last time in Matthew's gospel where he fed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And it's after that the common people want to make him king. That's how popular he is. So to figure out what's going on here, the... the uh, Authorities in Jerusalem send top legal ex experts to Jesus to investigate him, find out what he's all about, and they immediately run into conflict. Jesus deliberately flaunts their traditions 
And so they accuse him of being unclean this whole time. He's touching, he's being touched by people with all kinds of impurities, and he and his disciples don't go through the cultural cleansing rituals that the legal experts expected him to go through. I always want to stop and, and point out what they expected of him was not what his father expected of him. These things that they expected were never prescribed by God's law. They were later additions. Jesus always obeyed his father's law. But when it came to the traditions of men, he looked for opportunities to show that that's not binding and that's not helpful and that's not what we're all about. So they criticized Jesus for not going through their cultural cleansing rituals and Jesus responds to them with some teaching on the true source of impurity, the true source of corruption, which is the human heart. It, 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 Jesus says, it's not what you're putting in your mouths that's making you unacceptable to God. It's what's coming out of your mouth that's making you unacceptable to God. He says, men, you are the source of great corruption. And then, as if to punctuate the point, Jesus leaves there and he goes into an unclean land, into the territory of unclean people, into the country of the Gentiles. He's doing a couple of things by doing this. First of all, he's leaving the jurisdiction of the Herods. He's leaving the place where Herod and his brothers rule. So he's getting away from a, a, an environment that's heating up and, and he has much more to do and much more to say and he's got much more to teach his disciples before the final showdown in Jerusalem. This, Jesus withdrawing from here and going to another place, this is not a retreat from the field of battle. This is a strategic and wise move to buy time and to ensure that the inevitable conflict happens on his terms, on his schedule. This is why it's so important for us to keep this in mind that we have to pick our battles. You can't fight everything all the time. Uh, you, you have to consider if I put myself out there and if I if I choose this hill to fight on and possibly to die on, what exactly is this going to cost me and is it worth it? Is it strategically worth it? Am I gonna get anything uh, for this? Uh, is the return worth the investment? And for Jesus, he uh, thinks it's wise and it is wise to get out of this place where things are heating up to allow things to cool down so that he can buy some time and he can spend more time with his disciples before going to this showdown in Jerusalem. So Jesus deliberately goes into the territory of Israel's oldest enemies. He goes to the Canaanites, into the region of Tyre and Sidon, which were notoriously wicked. Back in chapter 11, Jesus references Tyre and Sidon. He says, woe to the cities of Galilee if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a long time ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon are these two pillars of wickedness and idolatry. You get Sodom and Gomorrah, and then throughout the Old Testament, you also get Tyre and Sidon. Uh, there are these idolatrous strongholds of idolatry and, and iniquity in that region. So nobody would have expected Jesus to go there none of the authorities would be looking for him there and no one would have followed him there either. 
Incidentally, this is the same place that Elijah goes to when wicked Queen Jezebel wants to kill him. When Ahab and Jezebel want Elijah's head, Elijah goes to Tyre and Sidon. In fact, he goes to Sidon. Jezebel was a Sidonian princess. That's where she learned all of her wickedness. And Elijah goes there to Sidon. And when Elijah is there, Elijah ministers to a woman and her child. Well, Jesus is doing the same thing. He's repeating uh, the story of Elijah because he's a new Elijah. He is opposed by a wicked king and queen, Herod and Herodias, who we've already met. And uh, Jesus repeats the story. He is going through the story of Israel as a faithful son, as a faithful priest and king and prophet. So none of this is ever a coincidence. Why are there still Canaanites, though? Why when do we still have Canaanites to deal with? It's because Israel wasn't faithful the first time through the story. Jesus is the faithful son, obedient perfectly to his father's law this time through. So Jesus is going to go conquer the final Canaanite mentioned in the Bible. This woman is the last Canaanite that we meet throughout the rest of the scriptures. She's the final Canaanite, and Jesus conquers her by delivering her from the dominion of demons in her home, and he brings her into the kingdom. So even though Jesus is pulling back from areas where he's well known, his fame has preceded him into this region, and he's met by this woman who cries out to him in this fairly theologically rich prayer. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She knows enough about the character and the covenant promises and the mercies of Yahweh, enough about the Messiah to recognize that this is who Jesus is. She's able to put this all together as a Canaanite. Now, many in Israel assume that Jesus is just another prophet. He's just another rabbi. He's just another insurrectionist and revolutionary, perhaps. But this Canaanite woman recognizes him for who he is. And right off the top, this woman calls him Lord. And she seems to have heard that he has the power over unclean spirits because she states simply, bluntly, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. In other words, I've heard that you know what to do about this. I've heard that you have the power to help me. Now, I think that what we would expect Jesus to say, if we were writing a story, the very next thing that would happen is that Jesus would just gush over her faith and her humility and immediately rejoice to see this kind of faith coming from a Canaanite. But that's not what Jesus does at all. What does Matthew say? Matthew says, he answered her not a word. That's unexpected. He ignores her. He doesn't answer her right away. Isn't that, isn't that kind of rude? His lack of response even makes the disciples kind of uncomfortable because evidently she keeps calling out, oh Lord, help me. Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, oh Lord, son of David, calling louder and louder. So the disciples urge him, send her away for she cries out after us. Now, some assume that what they're asking Jesus to do is to be even more dismissive of her. Just, just get rid of her. Just get, get, get her out of here. But in fact, they're asking Jesus to do something. 
because of the way Jesus responds, you can tell. What they're asking is, do something about this, Lord. We know that you have the power to, to fix her problem. Even if they think she's being a nuisance, they know he can heal her daughter. So they want him to do it, at the very least, so that they would be left alone from her pleas. But Jesus' answer to them is even more upsetting than his silence. He says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, wait a minute. I thought that one of the things Jesus accomplished through his work on the cross was the tearing down of the partition between the Gentile world and the Jewish world, the world of, the, of, 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 the, of Israel and the rest of the world. I thought Jesus came to tear down that partition and to make one new humanity, which is called by his name. In fact, Paul goes into this in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read you Ephesians 2. Paul says, for he himself, this is Jesus, he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So did Jesus come in his work and in the crucifixion to tear down the wall and to remove the distinction between Jew and Gentile? Yes, absolutely. That's what, that's what the rest of the epistles, uh, the rest of the New Testament is all about. 100% true. All of this is true now, on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection and ascension, on this side of Pentecost. But at the point that we're reading in Matthew's gospel, none of this has happened yet. This work of unification hasn't taken place. The barriers and distinctions between Jew and Gentile are still in place. It's easy to forget that the Old Testament world is still in effect in the Gospels. In fact, the Gospels, most of the Gospels are still Old Covenant literature. The, the Gospels are set in the world of the Old Covenant, and Jesus is the last great prophet to Israel. And his mission is not primarily to spread the Gospel to the Gentiles. The church is going to be very effective at that after Pentecost. But that's not Jesus' mission. His mission is to tell the Jews that God has fulfilled his promise in sending their Messiah, that God is going to do just what he said through his Messiah in bringing about the salvation of the world through the seed of Abraham. So Jesus, at this point, he's not denying that, that the Gentiles are going to be included in the plan of redemption, but he wants to be clear about the focus of his mission. He is coming for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There are other sheep. Yes, absolutely. And this isn't the first time that he's come in contact with a Gentile or helped a Gentile. But in Jesus's response, he is reasserting his goal, his aim, his work, in order to keep his disciples focused, which is a full-time job, keeping these men focused. They're easily distracted. Just a few verses before this, and what we read last time the disciples take Jesus aside and say, boy, you really offended those Pharisees. I mean, they are hot. Do you remember what you said to them? 
maybe you should apologize. Maybe you should walk it back a little bit. Maybe take it easier on those guys next time. And what does Jesus do? He says, no, you don't worry about them. You don't have anything to do with them. They are blind leading the blind. And then, and then here, they think Jesus' job and their job by extension, they think their job is to respond to every request no matter who's making the request and no matter where it's coming from. So they have in their heads this assumption that Jesus's mission is this, both to never offend anybody and to do whatever everybody else expects of you, to be everything that everybody else thinks you ought to be. So, so you, you have in their mind, and you have, have clearly what they think we're doing here, that you're never supposed to make any waves, you never offend anybody, and you do whatever anybody wants. Now, that might make a really good vision statement for a megachurch, but that's not at all what Jesus came to do. That's not what Jesus' mission was. So, so his point is to say, look, guys, that's not why I was sent. What did my father send me to do? What is my mission? If we read the Gospels casually, we might assume, well, what, what was Jesus doing? Well, he was just kind of going from town to town, saying a few nice things, giving some sharp witty responses to some bad guys who weren't any fun, but, but that's it. That's all he did. He just went around doing nice things and he got crucified for that. Uh, he's like a Robin Hood who can heal, basically. That's our assumption. Or that, or that he's just a Johnny Appleseed wandering the countryside, planting little seeds of love all over the place. But that's not who Jesus is and that's not what he came to do. He is here, in short, in the Gospels, to initiate the judgment of the old world and to usher in a new creation through his death and resurrection and ascension. That's his mission, not to be pulled in a thousand directions and allow everybody else to define his mission for him. So he takes this opportunity to correct his disciples. This is all vital teaching for his disciples, but this does not deter the Canaanite woman from asking for what she is looking for. In verse 25, then she came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. She wasn't derailed by his silence, by his non-response. She wasn't discouraged by his second response that, that wasn't what she was looking for, but, but she wasn't deterred by that. She falls down before him and worships him as Lord. She is persistent and tenacious. Again, there is no one else on earth who can come even close to providing what she needs. She is not going to let him out of her sight. So Jesus responds to her directly for the first time in verse 26. He answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now that's not very winsome of Jesus. He implies that she's a dog. And this is probably not the first time she's been called a dog by a Jewish man. Jews were well known to call Gentiles dogs. And they're calling dogs not as a compliment. They don't have in their mind, you know, Gentiles are like these fluffy little puppies or they're as loyal as a, as a Labrador. Uh, that's, not what he, that's not what they had in mind. When they call someone a dog or they refer to someone being a dog, they think dogs are unclean. Dogs are not clean animals. Dogs are threatening outsiders. Jews would not have kept dogs as pets. 
The only dogs they had reference to were the packs of wild scavengers, hungry, diseased, filthy animals that you don't want anything to do with. And Jesus already referenced dogs earlier when he said, don't cast your pearls before swine, don't take what is holy and give it to dogs. And, and now in keeping with that same statement, that same principle, he responds to this woman, I'm not here for you. I, didn't, I came primarily to feed the children of Israel, so I'm not going to take their bread and throw it to dogs. Now, this woman could have been highly offended by this. What did you call me? Who do you think you are? She could have fixated on this insult, but instead she makes it humorous. She turns a joke. Uh, she, she comes back for more in verse 27. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. What is she saying? She doesn't take an offense. She says, if Jesus says I'm a dog, I'm a dog. If Jesus says I'm unclean, I'm unclean. If you call me a sinner, I'm a sinner. If that's what Jesus says, that's what I am. If Jesus says I'm an outsider, I'm an outsider. Okay, I'm not gonna argue that, but I'm still not gonna let that deter me because you know, Lord, even dogs get scraps from the table. And then finally, Jesus breaks the tension and joyfully answers her request. In verse 28, Jesus answered and said to her, "'Oh, woman, great is your faith. "'Let it be to you as you desire.'" And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus knew that he was gonna heal this woman's daughter all along, but he's using this as a teaching opportunity for his people to remind them why he came. Why is he here? He, he loves this woman. He loves her daughter. But everything he does has to serve a bigger purpose. He's here to obey his father. He's not here simply to do good things as an end in themselves, but he's here to obey the father. And in the process of obeying his father, people are blessed. So throughout this whole exchange, this whole back and forth, I can imagine that there was a little twinkle in the Lord's eye. You know when you're playing a joke on someone, you're, you're teasing someone, and you're you know, playing a harmless prank and you're trying to keep a straight face through the whole time and not, not uncover the secret, not reveal the secret. He's keeping a straight face in order to draw her out. Do you really want this? Why, why do you want this? Is, this for, is your faith for real or are you just using me? He is forcing her to wrestle with the expression of her faith and to demonstrate really how sincere she is. Because the question is, is he really Lord or not? You're saying he's Lord. Well, if he's Lord, he doesn't have to stop and do what you ask him to do. If he's Lord, then he doesn't have to answer you the way that you think he ought to answer you. And just like when we hold back, when we're telling a joke, when we're playing a joke, he only lets it go so far before bursting out, oh woman, great is your faith. I can't keep this up any longer. I can't hold this back any longer. Of course I'm gonna heal your daughter immediately. And the girl was healed immediately. Jesus verbally sparring with this woman is like those times when you wrestle with your kids. You are so much stronger than they are. You can take anything that they dish out. You are in complete control of the whole situation when you're wrestling with your kids. If they get out of hand, you can just pick them up and put them over here. They can't overpower you. They can't make you do anything. But sometimes you let them get the upper hand. Sometimes you let them beat you. And they know you're holding back. They know you aren't going full strength. They know it because anytime you exercise just the 
smallest bit of energy, you completely overwhelm them. And, and you do sometimes. You show them, this is what would happen if I really wanted to pin you. So you go back and forth. Why do you play this way? Why do we, why do we wrestle? Why do we, why do we play games with our kids? Why do we do this? Because we're strengthening them. You are giving them a sense of what it's like to overcome a challenge without crying, without running off and, and sulking. You know, just take a little thump to the noggin. You're going to be okay. Get a little rug burn on your elbow. It's going to be all right. And muster your strength and finish because it feels good to beat dad at something even when he's holding back and even when he lets you win. It feels good to win. Throughout this entire exchange, Jesus is wrestling with this woman. And I have to think that he's delighted that she doesn't take no for an answer. She's going to get the blessing even if she has to fight for it. This is the same kind of faith Jesus has been describing in his parables. When he tells the, uh, the parable about the man who sells everything he has to buy the field that has the treasure in it, or the merchant who sells everything he has to buy the pearl of great price, this is, a, this is the faith of someone who knows what they want and will not let go until they get it. It is a persistent, tenacious faith. This is the faith of Tamar. Remember the daughter-in-law of Judah. Judah uh, has a son married to Tamar. His son dies, and he's supposed to provide another husband. Tamar wants to be in the covenant people, uh, uh, just is, is desperate to be among the people of the promise, and Judah mistreats her. So Tamar traps Judah into including her in the covenant people. This is the faith of the Gibeonites. Remember in Joshua's time when they were conquering the land, the Gibeonites act like we're not Canaanites. We came from a far away away. Look at our moldy bread. Look at the holes in our shoes. Our clothes are worn out. We're dirty. We've been traveling a long way, even though they were right around the corner. They look like they've been traveling a long way to convince Joshua that they belong among the people of the promise. We belong with you. We'll do anything we can to be part of the people of the promise. You want us to chop wood? You want us to carry water, which is what they end up doing? We will be part of the people. Just include us in the covenant. Include us in the blessing. And so Jesus provokes this woman to respond in such a way that she acts like this faith that's modeled in other parts of scripture, that she says, I'm not leaving you alone. You aren't getting away from me until you heal my daughter. Who else does she remind us of? She reminds me of Jacob. Remember Jacob was in great distress when he was about to meet his brother Esau. Uh, Jacob was coming back from the territory of Laban, but he was extremely anxious because he thought Esau is going to wipe me out. Esau is going to kill all my children. So Jacob is fearful for the lives of his children, just as this woman fears for her daughter's life. And so on the night before Jacob meets Esau, the Lord appears to him as a man and wrestles with him throughout the night, which is a funny picture of God wrestling with a man, a man that he could destroy with a word. He could just snuff out his life. And yet, and yet God chooses to wrestle with him all night. And as morning was breaking, Jacob was holding on so that the Lord says, let me go for the day breaks. Does God need Jacob to let him go? Does, does God need Jacob to consent to letting him go? Absolutely not. What is God doing? He's playing with him. He's, he's sparring with him. God can go anytime he wants to. But he says, let me go, let me go 
for the day breaks. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless, um, unless you bless me. I will not let you go. I'm not going to turn loose. And it's there that the Lord blesses Jacob and he changes his name. His name Jacob means supplanter, but he changes his name to Israel, which means what? He wrestles with God. That's his name. And then that name becomes the name not just for Jacob, but that name Israel becomes the name for all the people of God. The whole people. These are the people who wrestle with God. And now even the church in Galatians 6 is called the Israel of God. The church is the people who wrestle with God, which points us to what persevering faith looks like. Like this woman's faith, Real faith wrestles. True and living faith is not cavalier. It's not casual. Real faith and living faith doesn't just pop up when we think we need something. Rather, true faith looks like this Canaanite woman's faith. It is determined. It is tenacious. It is driven. It's a desire to have such a grip on the Lord that he will not leave us. Do not leave me behind. I will go anywhere, but I'll go with you. As long as you lead me and I have you and you have me, we have a grip on him even though we know that it's ultimately he who's gripping us. Even though we know that he's the one who started the wrestling match. He's the one who picked the fight and yet we engage and hold on. Right after this, Jesus demonstrates that in fact he does have enough bread to feed the whole world. He, he has enough crumbs falling from his table for all the dogs. Remember, he's still in Gentile territory. I'm gonna read the rest of this chapter. Uh, we're not gonna cover it in detail. I'm just gonna make one or two very brief comments on it, but I want to, I want to finish chapter 15. Now think about this, Jesus still in Gentile territory. What happens next? Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children and he sent away the multitudes, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Uh, remember that he just fed 5,000 people in Israel, and there were leftovers to fill 12 baskets. There's enough bread for all of the tribes of Israel, if only they'll have it. That's why there's 12 leftovers, 12 baskets, one for every tribe of Israel. Here he feeds 4,000 in Gentile territories. And reading this, you might think, oh, this already happened. This must have been one story that we get two versions of it. But that's not at all what's happening. The first feeding of the 5,000 happened in Israelite territory. The second time, he's out there in Gentile territory. He's been teaching through this Canaanite territory around Tyre and Sidon, and he's massed a huge following. He goes up, sits down on a mountain. 
he heals and he teaches. And before he sends them away, he tells his apostles, you need to find something for them to eat. And they scratch their heads saying, how in the world are we going to do that? Forgetting that just a few months before, they'd done the same thing. But now there's a different number. It's 4,000 now, maybe a reference to the four corners of the world. And there are seven baskets left over. Maybe we're to think of the 70 nations listed in the book of Genesis. But the, the whole point here is that he fed Israel first, and then now he feeds the Gentiles. So this is a prophetic action to show the trajectory of history after the cross. This bread is going to go out to the world. Well, what can we take away from this interchange between Jesus and this woman? First, very briefly, what is Jesus showing here by his example? When Jesus says, follow me, what does it mean to act like Jesus acts here? Well, to imitate him means that we're not afraid to speak in a way that provokes hard conversations about hard realities. There's this constant temptation for us to water things down so that the truth doesn't sound so mean or judgmental. People won't like us if we call them dogs, or people won't, people won't come to worship with us if we talk about sin, or we ask people to confess our sins, or, or to acknowledge that we're sinners. We don't want to offend folks by pointing out that the reason they need saving is because they're lost in their sins. However, Jesus cuts right through that, right in the middle of healing and feeding and casting out demons. The context is key. In the, in the middle of all this work, he calls Gentiles dogs, and then he does it in a way that draws people to himself instead of pushing them away. These multitudes that were gathering around Jesus weren't all saying, don't follow that guy. He thinks we're dogs. No, you see a great multitude around them, and how, how is he able to do this? So spending time with Jesus and listening to him and hearing him through the Gospels, we learn how to imitate his compassion, but also his boldness and his severity and his wit and his joy, and to get all of those things all right at the same time. And there is a place for this kind of repartee, for this kind of uh, conversation that he had with this Canaanite woman. There, there's a place for this, and it is it's good for mature Christians to be skilled at it. What happens more often is that immature Christians try it, and it's embarrassing. Uh, but we're not interested in that. We're interested in being more and more like Jesus and doing it well. Secondly, this woman is a model of the kind of faith that delights the Lord. This is the kind of faith that Jesus was not seeing among the elites in Israel. She doesn't come to criticize him or scrutinize him the way the scribes and the Pharisees did at the beginning of the chapter. She comes in a position of humility to earnestly, fervently ask him to deliver her daughter. This is how we pray. This is how we worship. We boldly storm God's throne with our prayers, asking him to provide for his people, to forgive our sins, to fix this broken world. James says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Jesus tells that other parable about the persistent widow who keeps asking until she receives her righteous judgment. So when we pray, we plead with the Lord to meet our needs, and we keep asking. We keep asking, even though we don't get an answer the first time, or we get the answer that we don't know what to do with, or we get the answer that we didn't expect. We keep asking because we don't have anywhere else to go. Just like this woman, he is the only one who can give us what we need. And if we don't get it from him, we die. That's it. We repeat 
his promises to each other and we repeat his, his, the promises he made to us in our prayers. Lord, you've promised never to leave us or forsake us. Lord, you have shown us your desire is that your will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. So I don't know how this is gonna get fixed, Lord, and I don't know what the outcome will be. All I know to do is just keep asking and I'm not gonna give up. I'm not gonna let you go until you answer me. Don't ever tire of praying and asking. It's that wrestling that he's asking you to engage in. He's asking you to pursue him. And Lord, we pray if you just give us a scrap of your blessings, if you just give us the crumbs, the leftovers, we'll be more than blessed. Her attitude is commendable and it shows us how to, how to pray. And not only shapes our prayers, lastly, it, it shows us how we engage the mysteries of the scriptures and how we look for answers for really tough questions, the tough questions of life and death. We encounter complex issues. There are things we do not have easy answers for. And, and this is God's way of going out a little distance and saying, come here, try to catch me. Here's something. Here, I'm going to give you this. Fight with that. Think about that. Wrestle with this. Chase after me. Why are there puzzles and curious events in the scriptures? Why does Jesus have the so-called hard sayings? Why are those there? Why are there there symbols and stories and prophecies and poetry, complex motifs that we need to just absorb and meditate on? Because if everything were just spoon-fed to us, how would we be strengthened? How would we be matured? How would we learn to think the way that God thinks and love what he loves? If you're at the point in your Christian life where you are asking hard questions and you're not satisfied with simple, simplified answers anymore, you're right in the middle of this. And this story speaks to where you are. And identify with this woman and her faith and don't give up. Don't stop asking questions because you don't get the answer right away. Don't stop asking questions because you're getting answers you weren't expecting. Don't get offended by answers that expose your sinfulness and areas where you need to correct first. And when you encounter hard truths, embrace them rather than walking away. There's only one source of truth. You're not going to get it anywhere else. So pursue, hold on, and grab hold of that source of truth until you get your answer. Jesus calls all men to come and wrestle with him, with who he is and with the challenges of the gospel. So respond to this challenge and wrestle with Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our savior. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us your spirit, that we might continue to grow and we might continue to pursue, that we might not give up and we might come with our questions and our complaints and with our our supplications, and that we would be heard and changed and filled. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.